Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today is Dr. Mark Lewis, Director of Gastrointestinal Oncology at Intermountain Healthcare in Utah. As a cancer survivor himself, he knows the value of seeing patients face-to-face at a trying time. These days in the pandemic, he's also using telehealth to deliver services to his patients with life-limiting illness. In this episode, we explore the implications of reaching out to patients in this way and the potential for COVID to change the way that healthcare is delivered to many, many patients. It is a great honor to present Mark Lewis. Mark Lewis, you're very welcome to the show. You're Dr. Mark Lewis and you're a, an oncologist, which is where I want to start our conversation. Tell us how you ended up A, doing medicine and how you ended up choosing oncology. Certainly. Tolstoy said every family is tragic in their own way and mine was no exception. So we are actually moving from the UK where I was born to the United States when I was eight years old and every immigrant gets a a chest x-ray to screen for tuberculosis. And my father, who at that point was a 42-year-old in good health, and he was a professor who was being invited to teach in the States, his x-ray showed a a mass that we weren't expecting. And that turned out to be cancer. So almost immediately upon arriving in the United States, we had to secure health care for him, which included surgery and radiation and chemotherapy. And he ultimately succumbed to his disease when I was 14 years old. So that period of time was, I'm grateful for how long it was, but I'm also, was obviously very sad to lose my father in my teenage years. And so that was really the, the moment, the sort of a combination of adolescent angst and, and filial rage that drove me to sort of view cancer as this kind of monolithic enemy. And that's when I devoted myself to the field. And I'll also say that my father's oncologist took me under his wing and invited me to work in his clinic all through my secondary school and even into college. And that's how I actually got to see the, it sounds strange to say, but the brighter side of oncology, the fact it's not all doom and gloom. It's largely outpatient these days, and it's uh, less and less about people being violently ill in the hospital. So that's actually what convinced me, not only that I like the science of the field, but it convinced me that there's a, a, a growing experience where you can preserve people's quality of life uh, and try to preserve or lengthen its duration. Firstly, we're very sad to hear about your dad. That must have been awful experience for anybody in their early childhood, effectively early adolescence, to have gone through that must have been harrowing, to say the least. And it's amazing that you actually found a way out of that in the sense of saying, not on my watch is this going to happen. <laughs> That's right. That's now, oncologists traditionally are not the cuddliest, warmest people, uh, <laughs> but you, 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 seem, you seem like quite a, quite a friendly chap. I'm trying to work out how did that turn out? How did you find that human side? Because oncology is a very difficult uh, area because you're dealing with people whose, whose prognosis is not always the best, no matter what you do. But I actually have to give my father a lot of credit. Again, even though I didn't have nearly as much time with him as I would have liked, he was never bitter about his diagnosis. And it's very easy when you're confronted with any serious illness, and obviously we're in the middle of a pandemic right now, which sort of heightens that awareness for anybody, to feel like you've been shortchanged by uh, your diagnosis. And again, I think his very deep faith, he was, a, he was a theologian, actually, that was his academic discipline, helped him to see that you know there's a whole range of, of outcomes. And, and one thing he liked to quote was, there's no guarantee 
And we'll get our three score years and ten that's mentioned in the Bible and the Psalms. And far from feeling, again, that he was being punished, uh, he routinely said, listen, I am actually getting an opportunity here to, to confront my mortality and prepare. And he would frequently like himself as, as being fortunate in comparison to someone that has, say, an acute illness or even dies in a traumatic event like a car accident. He really viewed having a chronic illness, even a terminal illness, as an opportunity to reconcile. He worked essentially until the end. He, he finished a book before he died. He was very purposeful in creating legacy for himself, my family, and his students. He was a, a beloved professor at a seminary in, in Texas. And uh, in fact, they still have a stained glass window up there for him. And so he, he was very purposeful when he knew that his time was dwindling. And essentially that left me saying, well, I really can't be too jaded about this. Was I angry and grieving as a teenager? Absolutely. But then I thought, well, you know, when patients with cancer are dealing with oncologists, uh, we're already scary enough. You know, you come to us, you know, wondering about your potential prognosis. The, the treatments are famously difficult to tolerate. The last thing you need is someone with a poor bedside manner or a demeanor that is not encouraging. And so don't get me wrong, I have my bad days. I was delighted when I became faculty and, and got a closed office because uh, without sounding too saccharine, I sometimes come in here and cry because it's just really sad. But I, I've tried to put on a braver face with the patients because I like to tell my trainees on my worst day, uh, they would easily trade places with me. There, There is no patient with cancer in my clinic that wouldn't readily switch around to the other side of the table. And you're, you're right. Uh, on your worst day, some of these patients would gladly swap places with you. Uh, I think that echoes. It's not the end of the story, though, is it? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So I have, I have a pet theory that I'll share with you and your audience that I think oncologists are slightly more prone to cancer ourselves, not through an occupational exposure, but because we're typically drawn to the field for some reason. You either completely love the science, and there's much to love there, especially the pace of progress, or you've had some sort of personal vendetta, again, against the disease. It's affected a loved one or, or a friend. And I think the fact that it's often a relative slightly raises our familial risk. And so what you're alluding to is when I was starting my oncology training, my very first week of fellowship, I developed a terrible abdominal pain. And I actually thought, this is a folly of self-diagnosis, I thought I had appendicitis. It was actually a high calcium level. It had given me an ileus. And the reason that clicked things for me was my father had also suffered from high calcium, not just from bone metastasis, but his entire adulthood. And there's very few conditions that give you consecutive generations with high calcium. One of them is entirely benign. We rule that out. And really, the only one that remained was that we would both have uh, overactive parathyroid glands. And the most common syndrome that does that generation to generation is multiple endocrine neoplasia. So it sounds crazy at the time. And in fact, I was accused of being a hypochondriac. But my very first week as an oncology trainee, I went to my assigned doctor and said, I think I have. Uh, a tumor syndrome. And he said, your first week oncology fellow, I think you're probably reading too many textbooks and have an overactive imagination. But sure enough, that's what I had. So it, what that meant was the entire prism of my training in cancer medicine and my practice thereafter as faculty has sort of been seen through this lens as, as a patient and, and as a physician. And I often tell my patients, listen, I'm a patient first, okay? I can't, I can't you know, leave my body. I, I always inhabit this body, which is prone to developing tumors. The fact that I'm also a physician is really to my own benefit, and ideally theirs too, 
it's a hard one empathy. It's not a complete empathy. I always stress to them. I have not yet had chemo. Uh, that could change very soon. I go in for my surveillance scans next week, and I never know exactly what those are going to show. But for the moment, I'm very fortunate. All I've required are some major surgeries, including the Whipple surgery on my pancreas in 2017 to remove a malignancy. But I've not required chemo. So I don't yet quite have that taste in my own medicine. But having said that, you've had a fair amount of exposure to doctors and to what the system has to offer people in these circumstances. What have you learned from that? Yeah, I've learned that thankfully the tide is shifting from paternalism to shared decision making. And I'll give you an example. So my father, who was a very gifted scholar, a polyglot, a polymath, never sent an email. He did not live to see email. And what I'm getting at there is he lived in an age where the information was almost exclusively the domain of the physician. And actually, I, I quite heartbreakingly remember him looking up cancer in the encyclopedia. That was that was the extent of what he could get his hands on. And of course, the description there was pretty rudimentary and not specific to his experience. Now, you know, more than a quarter century later, I, I will argue that we've not yet quite leveled the playing field, but the ability to access information and be self-advocating as a patient is so much greater. And, and we can talk a little bit about how the power dynamics still exist, but the fact that it is a little bit more equitable, I, I really think means that we're not just paying less service to shared decision-making. I really think it's, it's, it's truly here, and it's actually getting stronger, provided, of course, that we eliminate inequality and in access to information. I think, I think we still have a problem with the medical literature being... Uh, not just difficult to navigate, but in some cases inaccessible behind firewalls and paywalls. And then our conferences are traditionally very um, exclusive in the sense that it's sort of members only. And there are good examples, especially in cancer, of trying to open the doors, if you will, to advocates and patients. But you know, we still speak our own jargon. Often you know, traveling to these conferences is prohibitively expensive. And if you're sick with cancer and untreatment, especially right now, travel is probably the last thing that you're doing. So it, the weird silver lining of the pandemic may be that we are more open to sharing information virtually than ever before. That's true. And on the one hand, that's a very good news. But on the other hand, as I said earlier, you're not often in the business of giving people good news. Sometimes the prognosis sure. is awful. No matter what poison you're going to pour into somebody's veins, <clears throat> that cancer is still going to have its way with them. And as you know, as your father amazingly displayed this acceptance of the finality of life. When we have shared decision-making, how are we going to translate that in a way that requires somebody to be extraordinarily mature in understanding all of the things that we've talked about? Thankfully, so far, even in, in the pandemic, I've been very fortunate here, although I am in the United States and, and famously COVID is working here, in my particular area, there's a little bit less population density, a little bit better control of the virus. And so I have yet to have to tell someone either a diagnosis or a shift in prognosis in a setting that wasn't face-to-face. -face. I agree with you. I think that would be incredibly impersonal. I think there are, as you well know, a lot of things in the visit that happen both tangibly and intangibly just being in someone's presence. And what I would say is at the initial consultation, when someone's finding out their cancer, I, I think the patient experience is what I like to call the tinnitus of terror. You say the C word, and even though they're at the oncologist's office and all the context clues are, this is what they're going to hear, it's very uncommon to hear anything else. So I, I do a couple of things. One, I, I allow myself to be recorded, and then they can do that in whatever way they like. Typically, these days, people have a smartphone and they record, or 
these days, especially in a pandemic, they might you know, call or FaceTime with a family member and have them sort of be the scribe and note taker. And two, what I tell them is, you know, feel free to absorb this blow. And I, and I know that it's very difficult to take in everything I'm saying at the first visit. And then they can feel free to pose follow-up questions. I don't want them to feel like that's the only point in time where we get to talk about this. It's sort of like informed consent. Informed consent is not just handing someone a piece of paper, getting their signature, and then that's static. It really is more, I think, of a punctuated equilibrium. And, and what I'm getting at more is, is by doing it that way, I think you really do allow someone to be, in your words, emotionally mature, or at least more emotionally resilient. Because they really do go through essentially the Kubler-Ross stages. There's denial, there's anger, bargaining, some grieving, and then only then acceptance and really the ability to process cerebrally and not just emotionally. I'm thinking particularly of somebody who may have pancreatic carcinoma or has lung cancer where it is metastasized. It's going to be difficult to get this person cured in any realistic way. The prognosis is is weeks or months at best. How do you handle that given the shared decision-making that they know almost as much as you do about what treatments are available because they've been Googling it. Right, exactly. So, you know, everybody comes in with hope and I think it's a matter of determining for each individual patient what that hope is. If, if they think, if their hope is for cure, that's understandable, but you have to be, I think, realistic. My biggest challenge, honestly, is, is not over-promising and under-delivering. If I tell every patient coming to me that I can cure them, I am absolutely lying and I'm doing a tremendous disservice because then they're not using what might be quite limited remaining time the way they, they would if they were aware of, of their actual prognosis. So I would, um, you know, if we can't cure, then the next hope is for control, meaning keeping the disease at bay for long enough that they can legacy build and, and sort of, I don't mean this in too sinister a way, but get their affairs or do the things they would do if they knew they had limited time. And then finally, and I think you're incredibly compassionate in your practice. I think there's always hope for comfort. And that one never really goes away. Even with a transition to, say, hospice care, I think that hope for comfort remains. Maybe my other biggest challenge, to be honest with you, is at least in the U.S., there tends to be a fairly abrupt transition from seeing me as an oncologist. And then when the patient goes to hospice, it's actually very difficult to remain involved with care. And it sort of feels like a disconnect to them. So that's one thing I'll be honest, I'm actively working on it. I'm trying to stay attached, but not be intrusive. And, and it's I'm going sort of experiment, if you will, to figure out how to do that compassionately, because I don't want them to feel like as soon as they're out of my sight and my clinic, that they're out of my mind or out of my heart. And of course, what's now happened, and you mentioned that you work in the US, and what's happening worldwide is this is all being magnified. So our ability to see patients, I do telemedicine as well, telehealth. Yeah. And I often end the consultation on telehealth saying, I'm sorry, but I really am going to need to see you face to face. And we're going to have to facilitate that in some way because this isn't going to work. Um, And often the consultation goes a very different way when you're sitting face to face with somebody. The anxieties are much easier to handle when you're making eye contact and you're really understanding what the fear is that has gripped this particular person. How is that now playing out for you in your practice in this uh, pandemic? So I have three basic categories of patients. I have patients who have finished their chemotherapy and are in some state of remission. Survivorship is another word we use there. They have been the easiest, I think, to transition to a telehealth model. 
Uh, many of them actually would strongly prefer not to come and see me right now because they know that my clinic might be a node of transmission. There is a minority, though, that you'll be interested in who still insist on coming, and it's because they think we're going to miss something otherwise. They want physical exam, and I think they want that touch, uh, again, in the most professional manner, to reassure them that I can't find anything malignant, like, say, a suspicious lymph node. The second group is people who have metastatic disease, where if I don't treat them, to your earlier point, uh, the cancer is actually likely to kill them before COVID would. And those people also sort of need to, and I would insist on, on them coming to clinic, much as you end some of your telehealth visits. The trickiest group, to be honest with you, are people who are doing adjuvant chemotherapy. So they've had their cancer removed surgically, and now we're administering chemo as sort of an insurance policy to reduce the risk of recurrence. That's very uncertain right now in terms of risk-benefit. Am I actually harming them? by giving them in the short term an immunosuppressant? Or is it wrong to withhold chemo now to, quote, protect them from COVID if that's raising their risk of recurrence in the future? That's the trickiest balancing act. And as you're also saying, that, that calculus is so complicated and very difficult to do over the phone or a video. So that one also really requires in-person. So I would say of, of the three groups I manage, two of them almost necessitate in-person contact. And how is that playing out for you? Is, is that becoming very difficult? Are patients accepting the need to come in? I mean, some of them clearly are demanding to come in. Right, exactly. The hardest part, honestly, is our visitor policy. So I have learned that uh, patients' spouses and children and even close friends are such vital allies in their care. Because the patients I see the most frequently, I might see them an hour a week, tops. But what's happening all the rest of the week? They're, they're requiring assistance in, in every sense of the word, physically and emotionally, uh, sometimes getting groceries and basic supplies from their support network. And I've realized, too, like I mentioned earlier, it's not always quite so deafening uh, as at that first visit. But it's hard to take in all the things we're talking about uh, in each visit. There's a lot of data, unfortunately, to go over, as you might imagine, the blood counts, scans. And patients, especially when they're feeling poorly and coming for chemotherapy, uh, might really not be able to absorb all that. So the hardest part has been our fairly stringent visitor policy. Again, swinging the pendulum the other way, that has, I think, opened up more opportunities for phone calls and recordings. But it is really, really hard not to have a personal and physical presence of their support system. I've done consultations before, pre-pandemic ways, where I've had a room full of 30 people. It was like an old school operating theater, except instead of me doing surgery, I was explaining what was going on with the cancer, sometimes in very, very large groups, extended families and such. And to not have that audience, and I, and I don't mean because I'm grandstanding, that to, I mean to support and primarily the patient is very hard. There have been cases of my patients going into the hospital, getting dropped off at the front door, and then not seeing their family again until weeks or even months later when they're discharged. And so that's been really, really challenging. I can see that. And um, it sounds fantastic that you're seeing 30 people in a room, extended family. I mean, you're my kind of oncologist. Um, <laughs> that's another story. Second World War changed medicine in lots of ways. We got antibiotics. These events always engender another way that we practice medicine. What do you think COVID will do for oncology in terms of the practice of medicine? So I actually think the legacy is going to be more home-based care, and I actually think that's a good thing. Again, having seen my father struggle manfully to just have the energy to get in the car and go and get his chemotherapy, 
um, it often struck me as a model where we should be within the limits of safety and reason delivering some of these treatments at home. So actually, you know, where I practice is uh, I'm in the, the largest area in Utah, uh, but we're in the high desert. And a lot of our patients are in these surrounding areas that are not necessarily metropolitan. I know in Australia, you have a very uh, spread out geography, uh, especially uh, in interior and along the coast. So what we started doing, and this was, again, spurred on by the pandemic, is using a home health nursing model to administer treatment under supervision. Now, we don't do this with our most allergenic chemotherapies, but we are doing it with some of the more benign infusions, and the patients are just absolutely loving it. And it's, it's really fascinating because, again, on the day of their treatment, they don't have to exert all their energies just getting to me. I can bring the treatment to them. We still do labs. We still do a video check-in. Uh, but it does make me wonder if this is going to disrupt the oncology delivery model in a way that I think is a lot more patient-centric. That is certainly what was happening in Australia. You're right. This therapy at home delivered by a nurse under supervision. And of course, now it's, it's almost de rigueur to have Zoom. So it's not as if you are absent from the patient's experience. So you're, you're imagining a world, particularly where we've got this tyranny of distance, where people are being offered healthcare in that way. That's very, that's very exciting and is not disruptive in the sense of you're not saying, well, from now on, I only ever see my patients offline. Because as you, uh, as you say, that face-to-face interaction is so important to people. And it's funny, it strikes me that my own experience kind of taught me a little bit about this because I moved from Scotland to Texas. So the scale just became absolutely massive. I used to think when I was growing up as a boy in Scotland that going from Edinburgh, where I live, to see my grandmother in Glasgow, which is only about 40 miles as the crow flies, that was a huge trip for me. And then we moved to the middle of Texas and you can literally drive a day in any direction and not get out of the state. And so I really think, for, especially for large countries, mine and yours, that this hub-and-spoke model of care delivery is really crucial. And again, I I love your phrase, tyranny of distance. That is just perfect because the closer we can keep people to their homes and even their jobs in oncology, the better they'll do. One thing that often strikes me is the opportunity cost for someone that's trying to work and go through treatment for cancer. Here in the U.S., at least, the other problem we have is that so often health insurance is coupled to someone remaining employed. And it's almost like this double jeopardy where if they're missing work too often for treatment, they can lose the very job that is securing them access to that treatment. And um, I can't tell you the hoops that my poor patients have to jump through sometimes to do that. So again, making treatment with cancer as convenient as possible, and I say it carefully because I don't know if it's ever going to be truly convenient, but super important here at least to maintain people's livelihood. So where to from here? You, you've described a world that says, Traditional medicine is very important. The art of doctoring requires you to be in a particular, behave in a particular way. On the other hand, you've got some patients now who are beginning to benefit from being treated at home and being treated in a virtual way. What do you think is going to happen in the next 10 years? I think it's going to be a hybrid model. I don't know exactly when we'll, quote, get out of the pandemic. I have a bad feeling it's going to take longer than some economic and, and political programs might want. But I will say, I think after this, in so many ways, I think we'll be able to take a little bit of the best of both worlds. I hope, and I would imagine you feel the same, I hope that we'll never lose the opportunity for in-person contact. I don't want our patients to become you know, the 
electronic avatar or the eye patients that Abraham Verghese has so eloquently written about. On the other hand, I do think we don't always have to bring patients to us, and we should exploit some of the tools at least at our disposal to kind of bring care to them. And, and again, that goes back to the sort of information age that we referred to earlier. It's kind of amazing in my mind that we have the bandwidth now to be able to do this. And you're right, the, the scope and, and range to which patients are electronically facile is really remarkable. I've learned not to be ageist. Some of my 90-year-olds can operate an iPad better than I can. And it's been actually kind of wonderful in the cases where they can't to see the family structure. In some cases, I've had great-grandson helping their great-grandparent operate the iPad for a visit. So it's becoming a lot more common, I think, to have secure digital interaction with patients. I will say, though, I know we're kind of doing the dialectic. There is a chance that we'll leave some people behind. Here in America, I think we kind of unfortunately assume that everyone's privileged enough to have a good data stream and have these devices, and that's not necessarily true. So I think we have to be thoughtful that we're not even unintentionally discriminating against people that already suffer from other deprivation and not kind of bringing them along with this revolution. Yeah, you're right. We don't want to emphasize the inequity that already exists in healthcare. And the inequity now relates to your ability to have an iPad or a a good internet connection. I mean, that's ridiculous. Life's bad enough without that. (laughs) That's right. Where to for you personally, Mark? You've you've experienced the the, the very illness that you treat. Where to for you personally? Yeah, thank you for asking. I appreciate that. So on the, on the, I guess the, the very personal side, I hope my health will endure and allow me to do this job because the lifeblood of my work is patient contact. I, I, some people have said, oh, you should just be you know, doing you know, pure sort of academic or bench research. And uh, that's just not me. And I'm thrilled that there are people that that is their strength, but it's not mine. So what I tried to do is be pretty explicit that I'm a patient physician. I've been almost exhibitionistic online. And it's funny, just in the last, gosh, decade, I've seen this sea change from social media uh, engagement by doctors being seen as almost frivolous or unprofessional to now almost being, if not mandatory, highly encouraged. And and I'm lucky because I can waive my confidentiality and keep my job. And I know a lot of patients can't do that. So I'm trying a weird way to be sort of a mouthpiece for people that for whatever reason don't have the same voice. And so I, I think going forward, a lot of my advocacy is just being vocal to, to give you the most extreme example of my online work, when I had my procedure done, my Whipple surgery in 2017, I actually approached my surgeon and my institution's social media department, and I said, hey, listen, can we live tweet this? And the reason I did that is pancreatic cancer, as you implied earlier, is, is fearsome. It's so fearsome, in fact, that some, some people who are curable by surgery won't do it just because they're afraid of the operation. And I won't lie to you, it was, it was, I won't sugarcoat it. It was no picnic, actually experienced a, a host of complications. But I wanted to put it out there in, in literally in living color, in, in graphic detail, because I do think information is power. And I think the phrase I like to use is monsters are more scary in the dark. The more we can illuminate what an embodied experience of a patient with cancer is like, I'm not saying it makes it substantially easier, but I think it removes at least some of the uncertainty. And so I, I plan on continuing on being vocal and sharing for as long as I can. And I have to say, I'm not paid to say but my institution is, is profoundly um, supportive of me. I know that's not necessarily the case everywhere. It's actually kind of fascinating to see that some 
academic departments are becoming so progressive that they actually credit doctors for social media activity in, in roughly the same way they used to sort of count up publications. And it used to be you would publish or perish. Now I think people are realizing that you, you don't have to exclusively work in the peer-reviewed literature, although will always be a place for that. Nor do I think should you exclusively live in social media. I think the best marriage is probably uh, both. I think there's a false binary. And in fact, it's, it's wonderful these days when journals will promote content, especially uh, you know, synoptic versions of content that might otherwise lie behind a paywall. Mark Lewis, you're an, you're an extraordinary person doing fantastic work. And it has been a great honor to introduce you to our listeners. We look forward to hearing from you again, and we wish you all the very best. Oh, it's my absolute privilege to address you and your audience, and thank you for the work that you do. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com.